the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Back to the 1930s, penned by songwriter Cole Porter, who predicted 80-something years ago that America would find herself in the trouble that she is in today. A postmodern, post-Christian, post-strict constitutional interpretation of America where everything is literally turned on its head upside down. Think about it. Love of country is bad, but uncontrolled open borders are good. Teaching moral values in public schools are bad. Providing abortions to underage teens without parental consent or knowledge with the help of a public school nurse is good. Strong-arming police, uh, I'm sorry, strong-arming storekeepers, robbing stores of drug paraphernalia, defying police orders to stop jaywalking is good, but police doing their job to protect citizens and property is bad. Yeah, I think Cole Porter had it right. What's black is now white, what's up is down, what's good is bad. Upside Down is the title of a new book by our guest tonight, a look at how the left turned right into wrong, truth into lies, and good into bad. He is radio talk show host Mark Davis. And Mark, great to have you on the program. Craig, thank you so much, and great to be on in San Francisco. Boy, I tell you, we're, we're even upside down here a lot, but we'll get to the, uh, the Kaepernick uh, controversy coming up uh, a little bit later on in our conversation. I just want to first lead off with your, your observations in terms of, Mark, how we got here. I mean, you know, this was an America that was a loving America, that was a wholesome America. Sure, we were not without our faults, to be certain. But this was a nation that was willing to go to war to save all of most of the South Pacific and Asia, certainly save all of Europe from the tyranny of Nazism. Many people on planet Earth today would be speaking German or perhaps Japanese if it weren't for the efforts of America in the 1940s during World War II. We have been the nation that has repeatedly been turned to in times of crisis and emergency. Uh, whether you want to talk about us being the world's uh, you know, peacekeeper or police officer, um, coming to the rescue of many nations repeatedly. Even the nations that claim to hate us the most typically receive billions of dollars in aid from us every year. And yet the viewpoint of America externally is a bad one. And quite frankly, if you listen to a lot of the rhetoric coming from um, our friends on the Democrat side of the aisle, the viewpoint of America internally isn't all that healthy either. Completely true. And what has happened is in the past few decades, 
the left has decided that part of its agenda, I mean, conservatives are always going to have their goals, liberals are going to have their goals, and, and that's fine. Left versus right, Republican and Democrat will always have that. That's part of the sound of democracy, part of the sound of free speech. But some decades ago, the left decided that they were going to try to use some interesting tactics to bring about their agenda. They were going to attempt to do through the judiciary things that they knew they could not do legislatively because people did not want them. That's how they carved out abortion rights. And they've also decided that they were going to use a tactic in which they identified themselves as the only good people on earth. That to oppose them on issues of race uh, meant you hated black people. To oppose them on issues of uh, abortion or birth control meant that you hated women. To oppose them uh, by uh, seeking a smaller government uh, meant that you just pretty well hated old people and wanted everybody to starve. And sadly, it has worked. This is the current struggle of conservative politicians, isn't it? To, to step forward first thing and set your own show open identifies you as a compassionate conservative, which is a good thing to be. But would we even have to say these things if there had not been a successful painting of conservatism as uncompassionate? Well, and that's just the irony. I mean, we have seen this growing chasm in America. And as you point out, aptly so, Mark, there's always been a difference in viewpoints and opinion in America. And for most of our history, that wasn't deemed a bad thing. It was actually a good thing. The give and take meant that we, we discussed issues and we, we arm wrestled over uh, negotiating deals in Congress to come up with what would be the best legislation in the best interest of the American people. But now we've seen this growing schism in America where it's no longer right and left or even far right and far left. According to some of the articulation by Hillary Clinton in recent weeks, there's now an alt right, which I, I suppose is is the opposite of uh, you know delete left, which is <laughs> maybe she needs to learn a bit more about a computer in the process of sending yeah, all those emails out. We want to alt right, let's delete the left and start all over again. <laughs> you're right. The things have things have slid off the foundation. There's some debates how high or low should taxes be, which wars are worth fighting and which are not. You know, they're, they're, we're, we're going to have policy questions forever, and that's fine. But make a list of the things that are just crazy that we are even debating right now, that gender matters. Who, who would have thought that we would actually debate whether the, 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 the meaning of male and female would be something that would be under attack? Having borders in America that actually work. We're having a debate right now over whether we want that. And to, to bring it on home right there to San Francisco, I'm writing a piece right now. Can you imagine what Vince Lombardi or Tom Landry would have done to a football player choosing to sit down during the national anthem in, say, 1968 to protest the Vietnam War. But now, now it's okay. Now we can't do anything about that. That's what I mean by upside down. For the greatest degree of American history, Mark, fundamentally, we, we agreed on what was deemed to be good and what was bad. I think about a nation, even my reference earlier to World War II, where prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of 41, there was a good percentage of Americans that believed in America first. They've told the line that was being promoted by the likes of a, a Charles Lindbergh that said, let's stay out of American involvement in overseas actions. We went to Europe once. That didn't turn out so well for us. We don't need to get involved in European politics and debates yet once again. We need to take care of America first. That largely was a, a 
pretty widely held opinion across America in the days leading up to December of 1941, even as we were watching literally London being set aflame by the Germans. And yet, once Pearl Harbor happened... And Roosevelt went before Congress the next day and asked for that declaration of war. We understood we had to be in this thing to win it. We also understood greatly what was at stake at multiple levels. So there was a long period of time in which Americans could fundamentally agree on what was good and what was bad. But today it seems, Mark, as if the lines are so horrifically blurred that we're we're in this almost uh, morally neutral vacuum today. But I have to wonder if that's even true. Can you can you have morals exist in a vacuum? Well, you you can't. They have to have a foundation on which to rest. And the phenomenon that you've just described, uh, it, it lasted for a little while after 9-11. Here, here comes the 15th anniversary of 9-11 here in just a couple of weeks. And if my memory serves, uh, if, if the rest of 2001 played out, but before too long into 2002, most people fell, on the left at least, fell to their natural corners. They hated Bush. They did not believe in America as a force for good around the world, and so their attacks on him began. Uh, the war remained popular enough to get Bush reelected in 2004, and then became unpopular enough to get Obama elected, not just once, but twice. We are Gone is the idea of a unified America able to stick together and say, look, we may disagree on a thousand things, but we are up against, we are in a battle of civilizations. There is a global jihad that would kill us where we all stand if we let them, and there is actual debate over whether we should fight them. Mark Davis is with us today. Mark's new book is called Upside Down, How the Left Turned Right into Wrong, Truth into Lies, and Good into Bad. We'll take a brief time out. When we come back, we'll struggle with the question, when exactly do we think that match was put to the powder keg? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation. Best-selling author and radio talk show host Mark Davis is with us today. His latest book, Upside Down, How the Left Turned Right into Wrong, Truth into Lies, and Good into Bad. And like many of these things, Mark, there's typically one or two events, perhaps, um, or, or, or something that gives genesis to the devolution of this. And I mean, we can certainly look to certain markers that occurred that ultimately ended or led to the collapse of the Soviet Empire, uh, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In terms of what's happening to America today, is there any way to identify where the beginning of this slippery slope into the morass of of uh, what? we call it, uh, you know, morally neutral education, this vacuum that we've created that is causing this disintegration of American, not only exceptionalism, but, but our values? I don't think it was anything you could point to as one year on the calendar or one place geographically or one movement. It was, uh, when I say coordinated effort, I don't mean that there were meetings or anything, but just the, the American left decided in disparate ways and by electing different types of people that we were going to begin to de-emphasize some things that had previously meant something, like strong borders, respect for the police, uh, a devotion to the Constitution, and we were going to put 
in their place uh, a different kind of worship, uh, a worship of uh, climate change alarm, a worship of uh, equality of result instead of equality of opportunity. And those efforts have succeeded because we have not uh, adequately fought back. Uh, and, and that's what I, I was trying to do in the pages of Upside Down is give, I mean, a total through the book, about 120 or so things that the left has said that people should respectfully, calmly, civilly say, can we talk about that for a couple of minutes? Because it's not true. We don't know that the, the, that humanity is warming the planet. We, it is not true that conservatives hate black people. It is important that we have strong borders. And, and we haven't had enough people willing to get into the fray and have those conversations. Is a big part of the sort of the, um, the um, proverbial frog in the kettle um, slippery slope here that, as you point out, not any single event or year in the calendar or uh, presidential administration has led to this, but slowly and and um, maybe not a coordinated fashion, as you indicate, but in a systematic fashion. I mean, I think, for example, of what's happened in, in higher education, in universities and colleges, where today they are tax dollar subsidies of far-left recruitment, uh, quite frankly, that has had a major shift in not only the political agenda of our nation, witness what goes on in Congress, uh, but the dialogue on the streets. So it, a big part of this, I would imagine, is just slowly happened, and now suddenly we've woken up to the reality that this is the new America in which we live. The frog in the boiling pot is a superb analogy. I was in college in the late 1970s, and if you go back there and then maybe a little earlier, back into college life in the Vietnam era, the complaint on college campuses was that not enough views were being heard. There were students stepping onto campus and saying, we want to be heard, and the university won't let us. Now look at the way that's turned upside down, if I may be permitted. Now there are views that seek to come onto campus, conservative speakers, conservative films, and they are chased from a university environment because of trigger warnings, and they now seek things called safe spaces and speak of ridiculous things like microaggressions. And this is in higher education, which is supposed to be a, 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 an enormous proving ground and testing ground for all kinds of ideas. Well, that's one of the things that we have allowed to happen. What's ironic in this dumbing down of America as well is, is the fact that what we're willing to embrace is truth without question is, I, I think, absolutely remarkable. Some of the great thinkers of previous centuries would look at this and say, have you people completely lost your minds? I mean, let, let's look, for example, at all of the strides made by women in the last 100 years. I think of the suffragette movement and gaining the vote in America, gaining, you know, e equal opportunity, equal employment, uh, breaking through the glass ceiling, all of these important milestones within modern America that has helped allow for greater sense of parity and advancement of women throughout our country and our society. And I think most of us would agree that for the most part, that's actually benefited America. And yet, against this backdrop of all of these wonderful positive accomplishments that women have made over the last century, here we have the first presidential female candidate for a major party in American history who has tightly aligned herself with an individual having served as her chief of staff when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, 
who embraces and yet promotes a religion that is quite frankly anti-feminist. Uh, it, it, it is antithetical to everything that we know and recognize as human rights shown toward women. And yet nobody, Mark, stops and says, wait a minute, is there not a major contradiction here? And it, it isn't that a, a twisted irony that the left is thoroughly insufficient in its um, response to jihad and, 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 and Islamic terror. And yet they will scold our country on issues of women's rights and gay rights and then turn their heads completely as some of these nations that they are looking to welcome countless unvetted refugees from. You, you can be killed for being gay. You can be beaten for, for rising up to your husband. So, it, again, it is a selective attention that has turned logic on its ear. What do we need to do to get this dialogue going, as you're suggesting inside the pages of Upside Down, so that we can, uh, of the people that have an ear to hear, and I guess that has to be the qualifier here, because there's some people on the extreme left that don't want to be confused with the facts, so just leave them alone. But for everybody else, how do we get this dialogue started without being accused of being racist, anti-woman, anti-this, anti-that? I mean, you, you, you talk about this segment of, of America that claims to have a corner on tolerance and yet has demonstrated itself to be so horrifically intolerant. How do we engage? Well, it, it involves, uh, there, there's a saying, I know you're certainly familiar with, called Speak Truth with Love. It, it usually refers to uh, the biblical behavior and how to communicate biblical truth, but I think it's also possible to do this on, on more earthly political realms. Uh, let's not just dismiss uh, our, the people who disagree with us at, at work, uh, in our families, you know, the, the Thanksgiving table or the, the cubicle next door. Uh, in the pages of Upside Down are sensible, civil tools that you can use when someone offers up something that you simply know to be wrong, not just because you disagree with them. There's an old saying, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but we're not entitled to our own facts. Upside down is a fact-based way to, to just sit someone down and say, look, is it, uh, can, can, I, can you give me a couple of minutes? Let's share beliefs. You back up what you believe. I'll back up what I believe. And maybe in those conversations, town by town, state by state, uh, year by year, that we can begin to swing the pendulum back towards some shared values. We're not going to get everybody to agree on everything. That's, uh, I don't want to do that. I mean, there's, there's going to be differences of opinion. We're, we're talk show hosts. We don't ever want everybody to agree on everything. But certain basic things need to be rediscovered, and that's what I'm trying to do. Do we not to maybe need to get this dialogue started in the home? And I ask that question, Mark, because I remember as a young man growing up when there would be dilemmas that I would face, uh, when I had a, a, a ethical or moral dilemma in front of me, um, my father was more apt to say, well, Craig, what do you think? And forced me to engage in open thought, to express my thoughts, to talk through that process in order to insist me in the process of coming to the right conclusion. Part of this based on the knowledge that dad's not always going to be there, mom's not always going to be there to run to and say, hey, I have this moral dilemma, what do I do? You're not always going to have a book to turn to that tells you on page 12 what the decision ought to be. But if you're given the proper tools, you are raised with a fundamental moral foundation in what we used to call, uh, almost euphemistically now, the Judeo-Christian ethic. 
and we understand from Scripture where the basic morality flows from, and then we equip our children with the tools how to think and how to reason, that that will go a long way toward making a difference here. Sadly, most households today don't want to answer the questions in public schools, uh, no longer teach our kids how to think, but rather they teach them what to think. Exactly right. And that's why you've done me a great favor in making an observation that takes me right to one of my favorite pages of the book, the dedication page, because it's an entire book filled with problems that need solving and crazy things people say. On that dedication page, I decide to offer this book to the leaders, not just in government, but in churches, in communities, and in our families who have the power to solve every problem in the book. We're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation. Best-selling author, radio talk show host Mark Davis is with us. If you listen on occasion to our sister station, AM860, The Answer, you might hear Mark filling in from time to time for many of our nationally known and recognized syndicated talk show hosts. Mark is with us today to talk about his new book, Upside Down, How the Left Turned Right into Wrong, Truth into Lies, and Good into Bad. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation, radio talk show host, best-selling author Mark Davis with us today. A look at Upside Down, how the left turned right into wrong, truth into lies, and good into bad. You know, Mark, we're told in Scripture to be wise as a serpent and yet harmless as a dove. We also can extrapolate from Scripture that words matter and that actions also um, mean something. Um, And yet, just a recent example, we'll share a few here to kind of put perspective on this greater issue for listeners today. Um, The controversy right now with uh, Santa Clara 49ers uh, quarterback, this whole debate over whether he should sit or stand for the national anthem, I I get his point and his sense of frustration over what's happened in race relations in America today, particularly between the minority community and and police, but this, this sense that he's going to somehow fix the problem by sitting down during the national anthem um, it seems to be a misdirected. What do you think? Well, it is misdirected both in tactic and in content. Uh, there are all kinds of gestures that one can engage in in order to draw attention to something uh, in a way that will not solve the problem but simply make clear one's distaste. I, in, in, in giving Colin Kaepernick a, a, a thorough piece of my mind over the last couple of days, I've been asked often about the two uh, sprinters, uh, the African-American uh, uh, sprinters in the Mexico City Olympics in 1968 who raised their fists in a black power salute and were promptly ejected from the Olympics. That, too, was a a bit of an etiquette violation. But, you know, in 1968, Dr. King had been killed just six months earlier. It's not as though uh, widespread recognition of racial equality had kicked in everywhere. And say what you will about their tactic, you could argue that maybe they had at least a basis for their frustrations. Colin Kaepernick chose to insult the America of 2016, where we've elected a black president Twice We have African-Americans in every hallway of power and a, and a country that is co- where being called a racist is the worst thing that can be said about you. It is completely baseless. It is so incredibly insulting. And that's why we cannot just let things like this go. 
And I find it interesting. I mean, one thing to say during a press conference, uh, express your frustration. Um, but beyond that, to be engaged in not just expressing frustration, but to become part of the solution. This young man makes $19 million a year. And I have to wonder out loud how much of that, if any, goes towards helping to create solutions to this problem. Well, in, indeed so. And, and, and listen, I, I don't want to disenfranchise him because he's rich. Uh, wealthy people can have gripes, too, and express them publicly. But you brought up an interesting point. The people, the people who are famous, the rock stars, the athletes, the actors, I think have a special responsibility to kind of check themselves uh, and say, look, is what I'm about to do, does it honor is it a good use of, of, of the fame that I have? Am I about to put myself out on a line in a way that, that, that makes me a, a proud American, a good man, a good woman? If the answer to that is no, if it's just some kind of, you know, twisted off tantrum, then maybe that's something you go home and do on your own Facebook page. Well, moreover, you know, standing in respect for the American flag doesn't just count for the America today, but it also counts for the hundreds of thousands of men and women who have given their lives in the line of duty for this country on behalf of Americans. I, I find it the interesting irony uh, that the, the very people who died for that flag that gives him the right to even sit down and, and make this statement, uh, their, their memory, I believe, is being dishonored in this kind of behavior. Again, not to suggest that he doesn't have a right to freedom of speech, but there's a place and a time, and I don't know that he's necessarily contributing toward being an effective part of the solution here. Well, I indeed so, because uh, as I've said during the last couple of days of shows, that, that if it, Colin Kaepernick or anyone seeking to come forward and say what we need is a dialogue of sensible, rational people based on facts and evidence to examine racial disparity in our justice system. Because you know what? We will find some. We absolutely will. We will find the occasional bad cop. We will find the occasional unjustified shooting. And when we do, our nation truly stands united in 2016, not to sweep it under the rug or pretend it doesn't exist, but to find it and punish it. And leading that interest are our nation's police departments themselves. So that, that's what makes, that's what compounds the tragedy of a hate movement like Black Lives Matter, is it's just so totally, confoundingly needless. There's another major point of debate that's uh, much to do has been made about uh, in this political campaign as well, and that is the whole notion of whether or not America is a sovereign nation, whether or not we have a right to protect our borders or to leave open borders to all from anywhere at any time. Where does this notion that anyone who suggests that there be any controls on the border is somehow racist, where does this notion find its genesis, well, that, that, that's the movement that I described, where everybody wants to be nice. Uh, the millions of, of people have succeeded in convincing Americans that it doesn't even take millions of people. The media culture has done it. We need to fight back against that uh, in suggesting that if you are serious about borders, it must mean that you, you hate uh, Hispanics. If you oppose uh, waves upon waves of unvetted Middle Eastern refugees, that must mean that you're an Islamophobe. And, and this is what's interesting about Mr. Trump. I mean, I was a Ted Cruz guy, but I pivoted immediately as soon as it was clear that only Mr. Trump can prevent a Hillary presidency. And in his mixed bag, 
bag of, uh, of offerings may be a candidate who will actually do the kinds of things we all should be doing, pushing back against that nonsense. And, of course, in addition to that big bit of controversy, there's another arena that I find most troubling. Uh, we've had most of this genesis beginning here in California, and then it's beginning like a wave across the country, most notably with an executive order that essentially, I think, is a, a problem in search of a solution, and, or a solution in search of a problem, rather. And that is this idea that somehow uh, there are no gender differences. Isn't it interesting that for years we fought to bring about things like uh, equal pay for both genders, equal vote for both genders, equal access for both genders, inclusion. But now all of a sudden we're being told none of that matters anymore, that in fact gender differences don't exist. We're all just human beings, and the differences made by God for the purpose of the furtherance of the species are now things that are to be overlooked. And in fact, if you have a nine-year-old boy who says today, Mama, I think I'm a girl, there is a movement afoot that says not, not only can you not take him to, to deep Christian counseling, which is exactly what you should do, because there is no such thing as a transgender nine-year-old, but it says that to do so is in fact child abuse, and you should just let the child's transgender flag fly and, as, as if that and not the opposite is human nature. And sadly, you add to that list, and you talk about this in the book, this notion that if you stick up for babies in the womb, you hate women. If you align yourself with a virulent anti-women religion like Wahhabism Islam, you're you know, a feminist hero. I mean, the, these dichotomies here that defy the imagination, but I think also suggest that we, we're no longer a thinking people, and we've become a people that went from being a nation that was here with the sole express purpose of being able to find religious freedom that we might worship God in the fashion in which he wants us to. And instead, we've come to become a people that want to stick their thumb in God's eye. Indeed so. And there is nothing in the pages of Upside Down that suggests we all have to be of the same faith or everybody has to agree with me or we all have to be conservative. Not at all. But let our battles be over the things that are properly battled over and not over the basics that make any society healthy, like recognizing the roles that God created in man and woman, recognizing that you don't have a country if you don't have borders, and recognizing that when you have a jihadist enemy that wants to kill you, you have to fight that enemy. These are not just political opinions that you're expressing here. At the core, there there's real life and death hanging in the balance here, is there not, Mark? And by that, well, I mean it, that if we continue down this road without taking some serious corrective action and finding the common ground that we once had, can you see the fate of America being a very healthy one? I do. If, if I were not optimistic, I'm optimistic because my faith guides me toward optimism. And also, I, I just can't help but think that you know, if this election, a couple more elections, that the pendulum can swing back. On the very contentious issue of abortion, for example, we simply are not as cavalier as a nation. We are not as, as lackadaisical about the, uh, the rights of the unborn as we were when Roe v. Wade passed in 1973. And if we can swing the pendulum on that, then maybe anything's possible. The book is a solid look at a lot of not only what confuses America, but what divides America, how there has been, as we've suggested in our conversation with Mark Davis today, this um, uh, frog in the kettle effect that we've suddenly find ourselves over the course of a number of generations, probably dating back to the 1950s or 1960s, maybe more accurately, a loss of a sense not only of our innocence in America, but the loss of our sense of common ground, common understanding, common values. 
No people, as we've seen demonstrated by past, no longer existing great societies, can survive without finding some kind of common value, common ground, common good. That is the condition in which we find our nation today, and we've got to get back to some of those roots. As Mark Davis points out, it's not as if there is a single political persuasion or viewpoint that exists, and you must comply with that and no other. No, there is room for differences of opinion. But at the end of the day, if America cannot get back to its goodness, as de Tocqueville spoke of, uh, in our churches and in our sense of of common ground, embracing a common Judeo-Christian ethic, Uh, upon which this nation was founded and survived and thrived for so many years, then sadly our future may not be a bright one. But there are many indicators, as Mark Davison points to, that suggest that there is hope. But to, to rise to that level of hope, we need to be active, we need to be prayerful, and we need to be engaged. The book, again, called Upside Down, How the Left Turned Right into Wrong, Truth into Lives, and Good into Bad. The new book, published by Regnery Press, media partner of the same fine folks who own this radio station. Our thanks to Mark Davis for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Many of you out there perhaps are uh, part-time gardeners or like to, uh, what's the word, not tweak? I'm trying to think, what is the, what is the proper, appropriate term here, Jarrell? You, you, you love to meddle around in the garden. <laughs> uh, your spouse might say occasionally killing plants. Uh, certainly that's, uh, that's one of my uh, badges that I wear none too proudly. But uh, you know, then again, you might have some luck and success once in a while. You certainly know that there are times and seasons when older plants, more mature plants, begin facing some growth challenges. Uh, Seemingly, no matter how much water you feed them or how oftentimes you uh, turn them to make sure they're facing the light, uh, their leaves begin to get yellowed. Uh, The edges perhaps begin to, to grow brown. There is a lot less new growth, and the older growth, quite frankly, is looking dingy, tired, and worn out. So what do you do? Is there a way in which you can revitalize and bring new life to that plant and hope that it will um, somehow will carry on further? Well, one of the big methods is plants like that oftentimes become uh, root-bound, particularly when they're potted plants. And so it requires going in, uh, removing the potting uh, around them, uh, trimming the root, which sometimes can be a painful process, and then, of course, replanting that plant in new soil, fresh fertilizer, lots of water, lots of sunlight, And the vast majority of times, in fact, that replanting process, as time-consuming and perhaps painful as it might be in shock to the plant initially so, can be the long-term solution to giving that plant a new lease on life. Let's think of that same analogy when it comes to churches and church planting. Does it sound familiar? A congregation that's been around for many, many years, many generations, and at the edges is starting to look sort of drab and dreary and tired. There is no new growth, and so oftentimes the decision comes, gee, is it time to just put that plant out of its, or that church, out of its misery, or are there things that we can do to replant that church in a similar fashion the way we do a replanting of a plant a house plant to give it a new lease on life well my next guest tonight i think would suggest the answer is absolutely so he is a gardener of sorts a missionary uh, author and um, professor at uh, Beeson divinity school in birmingham alabama he spent uh, years in bangkok thailand and uh, works as a, a church 
an advisor in many respects, helping churches discover how a dying congregation can grow once again. The book is called Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again. Dr. Mark Devine, great to have you on the program tonight. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, this is a painful process, isn't it? Uh, number one, I think oftentimes painful for congregations to admit uh, that they are in fact uh, facing a very uncertain future. It really can be, and um, uh, I really didn't set out to become sort of a you know a church a consultant or a fixer, but. Uh, once I became a professor and could no longer serve as a full-time pastor, I found myself really not knowing what to do with myself, and so I ended up becoming uh, an, in, uh, a serial interim pastor for churches that are without a pastor. And then after the first couple of those, I really found myself in a new, uh, exciting ministry uh, with a growing mission field because 80% of churches in North America are declining. And I really found myself um, really looking at these churches very differently than it is just a way station for the next pastor, but trying to think, well, wait a minute, this church has been declining for so long, they've had one pastor after another, is there something I can do in my unique position, since I don't want to stay permanently, that might help this congregation grow again? And I haven't always been successful, but it's really been exciting uh, to try to help in these ways. You speak throughout the book of your experiences, specifically at um, the Calvary Baptist Church. Let's talk a bit about that. Uh, this is a church that you describe as having been in its third decade of decline, and, and certainly one of the big indicators that there was lots of trouble afoot. It went through the totality of eight pastors, four permanent, four interim, in just 10 years. That, that's, what, like a year and a half or so per pastor? That certainly doesn't bode well in terms of the healthiness of that church or, <laughs> the very least, the stick to it to this uh, of those called the lead. I'm told that the average pastorate now, tenure of a, of a pastor in churches today in North America, hovers around two years. That's hard to believe. But um, it really is an indication of sort of the, 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 the pathology, the lack of vision, uh, and the difficulties. And what happens oftentimes in these churches is that after the first two or three pastors uh, stay a very short time and leave, um, the, the congregation itself lapses into a pattern of behavior that prevents it from being led. Inevitably, uh, highly motivated laypersons, often very well-meaning, begin to occupy leadership turf that really belongs to a pastor. And these congregations become, without even realizing it, virtually unleadable. And so for all the good intentions that many might have and the pockets of ministry that often exist in these churches, they're really, they've rendered themselves uh, resistant to any real visionary, uh, strong pastoral leadership. And usually until that uh, is changed, and it usually is, most of these churches never come back. Well, in, in all fairness, uh, 
Dr. Devine, you, you speak in the book of, of the fact that there had been individuals that were in these positions, and I would imagine to the greatest degree, many of them um, out of necessity. When we look at that high degree of turnover, I mean, suddenly from transitioning from one passage to another, there are areas of need and care within uh, the greater life and body of the church and pastoral ministry that need time and need attention. And so uh, it would seem like a lot of these folks might have stepped into those positions, uh, probably of, of good heart and will. But then uh, what are you suggesting? Something happens along the way where they they kind of uh, dig their heels in and suddenly it, it moves from here's a, a deacon so-and-so or sister such-and-such so God bless her is willing to step in while we're in the middle of a, a crisis here. Pastor's left. We've got an intern pastor who's trying to get the lay of the land. And so they're willing to come in and help out. And then what? It turns into uh, suddenly from um, good-hearted ministry to taking advantage of personal perks and privileges? A lot of the decisions that a pastor might make or lead the congregation to make end up being made by powerful lay people, and they get used to doing that, and they like to do it. And once a congregation sees pastors come and go quickly a few times, they they are slow to treat the next pastor as though he will be around for, for very long. And therefore, his ability to gain their trust and lead is uh, is greatly diminished. And then if a pastor comes in who's bound and determined to leave, then he faces resistance with entrenched sort of turf, uh, uh, turf battles where various people have staked out some turf that uh, they see as theirs and they're protective of it, but as long as the pastor can't lead, uh, you know, if he, if he can't have influence on that turf, then he really can't lead the congregation, and these pastors eventually give up and, and they go. If you've just joined the conversation, we're, we're talking about a lot of the principles that gardeners use in bringing new life to a dying plant by replanting it. We're all familiar with the concept of church planting. What about the concept of church replanting? Some lessons on how a dying church can grow again. Dr. Mark Devine with us tonight. Maybe your church is going through some of this. Maybe you have individuals in your church that, as Dr. Devine suggests, have stepped in to help out during difficult times and suddenly now are intentionally or otherwise engaged in making decisions and taking on areas of authority, quite frankly, biblically, belong to the pastor, but out of emergency or short-term necessity, they have taken. And suddenly now it's gone from, let me step in to help out, to essentially a usurping of position, authority, and spiritual responsibility that ultimately does not bode well for the life of that church. If you're in that kind of circumstance, you may want to just simply eavesdrop on our conversation. Maybe you you want to dive a little bit deeper, and uh, I can understand not wanting to get out on the radio and uh, reveal your name or the church that you're involved with, but time out. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.